about looking at the book of Galatians. And um, it's, to me, it's a really exciting book. Um, and once again, just to reiterate, one of the key points of the book is Paul is addressing <clears throat> the church in Galatia because um, they had moved away from the gospel that he had come and preached to them. And they had begun to allow um, the Judaizers to come in and, and bring in legalism. And it was beginning to bring separation amongst the believers. And so Paul's addressing that. And so Paul's confronting that. And, and, uh, and so tonight we're going to be talking about, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be beginning in the first half of Galatians, the fourth chapter. And here, at least for me, you know, this really gets exciting because he begins to talk about um, the covenants and um, adoption. It's going to be one of the topics that we look at tonight is adoption from the, um, the New Testament biblical point of view and so on and so forth and how it, how it really applies to us. And, and so tonight we're going to be, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about um, the Abrahamic covenant. And remember through this book, Paul is continually making the comparison between um, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And, uh, you know, in Hebrews, the seventh chapter, we'll, we'll look at, at that a little bit. Uh, but he, he tells us in the, in the 20th verse, he says that, but so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. You know, and so what I want us to do is, why does he refer to it as a, as a better covenant? Because, you know, like I've said, I'm from Minnesota. And uh, in Minnesota, if it's better, that means it's gooder. And so we, we have a gooder covenant. It's better than the old covenant or what was. And so uh, why is that? And, uh, but when we're looking in, um, in the book of Hebrews, he talks about we have a better covenant established on better promises. You know, because it, it isn't, established by law, it's established by promise. And that's how the Abrahamic covenant was established. It was, it was established on promise. It was God saying, this is what I'm going to do. Abraham, you're going to have a son. Sarah, you're going to birth that son. And it was, it was by promise that that covenant was established. And, and under the Mosaic um, Covenant was it was law. You do this, and this is what's going to happen. But notice with Abraham, he didn't have to do anything but believe God, and that's how it is with us. And 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 see, the key about it is, and we looked at it. I guess we looked at it Sunday, where it says faith without works or faith without corresponding action is dead. True belief, true faith will always produce a response. It'll always produce, <clears throat> produce an action. You know, it's just like, 
how I've shared when I was born again uh, in the basement of Vern Lewis's house when I heard that word and I, and I saw that I was a sinner in need of a savior that in a sense demanded an action on, on, on my part. And when faith rises up on us, it, it isn't God demanding, but us knowing the truth, it, it demands an action on our part. When you, when you get a hold of the fact that by the stripes of Jesus, you have been healed, that truth, that reality, when it comes alive to you, it, it demands an action on your part. When you see sickness trying to come against you or against somebody that you love, <clears throat> it, it forces an action out of you. And, and same thing with, with, with all of the promises of God. But, but in order to understand the better covenant, we've got to understand how, how God operates. And, and it's in your notes, but, but God operates, we, we call it dispensations. And that just simply means <clears throat> periods of time. You know, we, we have centuries and so forth. Well, God didn't operate in centuries. He operated in, in dispensations. And I just listed them there for you so that you could, could just uh, see them. And, 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 and I think when you really begin to um, look at them, they begin to make sense to you. Um, began with Abraham to the fall. It was a period of innocence um, because they lived in innocence. Isn't it interesting? It wasn't until, Abraham, until after the fall that uh, Adam realized that he and, and uh, Eve were naked. I mean, it was, it, there was innocence there. And, um, you know, we're living in a world where innocence seems to be lost. But you know what, God wants to restore that. Um, and then from the fall to the flood, it was a period of time of conscience. But notice the problem with, with, with the conscience is that we, we have a tendency to sear it. And, and so um, it, it tells us concerning um, Noah, you know, I always thought the flood was judgment. But when you begin to, to, to really study it out, you, you begin to realize the flood was not judgment. The flood was the mercy of God. Because Jonah made this statement. He says, uh, did I say Jonah? Do I mean Jonah? No, I mean Noah. Noah, yeah. Well, th some of you are sensitive. I saw people whispering, and so I knew I was doing something wrong there. <clears throat> Noah. You know, but, but Noah made this statement, uh, or was made concerning the time frame God did. He says, but for Noah and his family, the knowledge of God was lost from the earth. You know, <clears throat> there, there has always been, there's always been a, a people. Um, there's always been a, what, what's the word that I'm searching for? Remnant. remnant. There's always been a remnant. And there, there has to be because Knowledge has to come through someone or something. And so if, if Noah and his family had, had died in the way that everybody had been dying, the knowledge of God would have been lost from the earth and there would have been no avenue for a Savior to come through. And so really, the flood was an act of, of mercy, it was an act of grace on God's part. 
And I think it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing. When we, when we begin to look at the scriptures differently through different, you know, Creflo Dollar talks about it as, as looking at through a lens. And when we begin to look through the scriptures with a different lens, all of a sudden things that we once saw as God bringing judgment or, or whatever it may be upon, upon humanity, we begin to see it through a different lens and we begin to see that throughout the Old Testament you can see the grace and mercy of God. Well, it would seem strange if we wouldn't because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he doesn't, ever, he doesn't ever change. And so then there was the flood to the Tower of Babel, human government, man says this is what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to come together. We're going to be in agreement and remember what God said concerning it. He says everything that they've purposed in their heart, they're going to do because they're all saying the same thing. Tells us how important words are once again. Um, then from um, that time, uh, then there was a time of Abraham, which was a time of promise. That's when he, he gave his promise. You're going to be the father of nations. Uh, then there was the time of Moses, and that's where the law came. And as we saw law last week, how the law was added because of disobedience, because uh, man um, couldn't adapt to the promise, wouldn't walk in the promise. And we, we have the same thing today. We have, we have the promise of God that's been made available to us. I, I never forget, you know, this is kind of, <clears throat> I don't know how biblically sound this is, but it, it, it's, it's just an interesting, interesting thought. Um, when we were at COC, and they had the Christian school there. And uh, so Nicole was in this class, and, and everybody else in the class were boys. And, uh, and, and they were quite interesting boys. They naturally would be. Their fathers were all preachers and missionaries. So, <clears throat> but anyway, they're, they're an interesting bunch of boys. And, and we went to um, the class teacher's conference with the teacher. And, and the teacher made this statement. She says, you know, this is really hard for Nicole and I. Because she says, Nicole and I are really used to grace. But these boys, because of their disobedience, we have to apply so much law that there's hardly any room for grace. <laughs> And I'm just thinking, if you're not experiencing it, well, we won't go there. Just, just think about it. Just, just a little thought there. God is a God of grace. Do we leave, leave room for grace? And so then, uh, then from Jesus to the present and until the rapture will be in the time of grace. Some call it the time of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's one of the same. And the last period of time is going to be after the rapture, and that'll be um, during the millennial reign. And so those are kind of the, the you know, and, and seven always seems to be a significant number, and so there's, there's seven um, different dispensations, periods of time. Um, and so God operates differently. He operates through, dis, through dispensations dispensations. But the interesting thing is in all of those periods, 
Faith has always been the key. You know, that's not changed. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, and it's always, it's always been that way. You know, even, even Moses <coughs> operated by faith. And, uh, and we see this consistently throughout the scriptures. You know, I don't know about you, but I think one of the most exciting books in the Bible is, is Hebrews, the 11th chapter. We always talk about it as being the, the chapter of the listings of the heroes of the faith and so forth. But the one thing you see over and over again in this chapter is, is faith. Um, verse four, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Verse five, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not um, see death. Um, by faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith. He dwelt in the land of promise by faith, Sarah. So it's over and over again we see by faith. Then in verse 13 it says, these all died in faith. Now, they died in faith looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. You know, that's why when they would celebrate their feasts and so forth, there was always an empty chair that was that was there for the Messiah. They were to be reminded of his, of his coming. You know, thank God we don't have to look for, I mean, we are looking forward for his return. You know, that's why the command to us now is look up. You know, because he's going to come in the clouds. It says in the same manner that he is taken up is in the same way that he's going to come back. You know, he was taken up in a cloud of, uh, of witnesses, and he's going to come back in a cloud. And so to us in the New Testament, our looking ahead or our looking for Jesus is, is to be looking up, expecting that he's going to be coming back, that he's going to be returning at any time. Then 39, it says, and all these have obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. What was the promise? The promise was Jesus. But they received by faith, looking forward to the manifestation, to the, to the birth of Christ. They were all looking forward to that. God having provided something. <laughs> I, I, okay, I'm selfish. I like this. I think this is actually exciting for having, for God having provided something better for us that they should not uh, be made per, uh, perfect apart from us. You know, we have what the saints of old longed for, looked forward to by faith believed for, but we get to experience it. We get to, we get to walk in it. We get the, the fullness of it. And so this is the promise of the covenant, the better covenant that's been made available to you and I. And so that's what we want to talk about, how this, this covenant has been made available to us. Last week when we, we closed kind of quickly, 
Um, and if I don't get going here, we're going to be doing it again tonight. But in, in Galatians, the third chapter, and the 24th and 25th verse, it says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we, no, we are no longer under the tutor. And this, this word tutor is, is patagos, patagos. And uh, chapter 4 now really, really picks up on that. And that's why, to me, chapter 4 is, is such a exciting portion of scripture when we begin to when we begin to understand it you know because in the ancient world adoption had a different meaning than what adoption has today today when we think of adoption we, when we hear of somebody being adopted we think of somebody that uh, uh, is is from a different family that wasn't able to take care of them or whatever the, the case may be. Maybe the parents were deceased. But anyway, this other family took them in. And even though they were not of their blood, they adopted them. They, they legally made them part of their family. And so that, that's more of the, the, the modern concept of adoption. But the adoption that we're talking about here in the book of Galatians and that we've just made reference to. <clears throat> it, it's, a, it's an adoption that, that has more to do uh, with the Roman Empire and so forth. But, but within this adoption, what's takes, what takes place is a young child, boy, is born into a family. And it, and it could be a very wealthy family. But, but the moment that that child is is weaned, he's put under the care of a tutor. He's put under the care of a patagos. And that individual, basically what he is, is he's a slave. But his sole responsibility is to train this child to how to teach him how to eat properly, uh, train him how to deal with the affairs of life properly. But here he is, he's a He's an heir, he's a part of the family, but he basically lives as a slave. Because he lives separate from the rest of his family, he, he sleeps and, and lives in the quarters with the slave that is tutoring him. And so at, at a certain age, at the age of 14, he goes through a certain ceremony and at the age of 14, he takes off his coat or his cloak of, of childhood and he puts on a new coat. You know, we see throughout, especially through the Old Testament, we, we see the significance of the cloak that somebody's wearing, the coat that they're wearing. We, we, we have the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors and how his brothers hated him for it because every time they saw him, they, they, they knew that he was favored by his father. And we, we see that there was certain garments that, that slaves would wear. There were certain garments because remember, uh, we, we see this in the New Testament, 
but it's, it's still spoken by Jesus. It's referring back to old customs where um, the prodigal son, when he comes home, what was the thing that the father wanted to do? The first thing he wanted to do was put sandals on his feet because only the slaves and poor people went around uh, barefooted. He wanted to put a ring on his finger, which indicated authority, but then he wanted a, a, a robe put on him. And the significance of that robe was that it was his son. It was a robe that, that demonstrated who he truly was. You know, we, we, we see it in the, uh, you know, so many different stories that we look through in the Old Testament. You know, we, we see Esther is an example. You know, that when um, Mordecai was her uncle, who was the jerk? Haman. Haman. You know, how when he thought he was going to get a, put one of the king's robes on, he was excited about it because he knew what that robe would represent to everybody that's, that saw it. And so at the age of 14, he goes through this ceremony. And when he goes through this ceremony, he exchanges robes. And it's the robe of maturity. He takes off the robe of, of childhood. He puts on the robe of maturity. And in that ceremony, he goes from living like a slave to experiencing all the inheritance that belongs to him. In other words, he begins to eat his father's table and, and all the things that go along with that. And so it's, we look at it and we just think, well, this, this just doesn't make any sense. But when you understand what's really involved with it, all of a sudden, excuse me, we begin to see the importance and the, the significance of it. And so the, the first seven verses of, of Galatians 4 is really talking about this adoption process. Now this is just for your information. Um, you know, because as you're reading through your your Bible, you don't see these words, but it's, it's just like so, so many words that we have in the English. When you, when you go into the Greek, it has so much deeper meaning. You know, we always talk about it with, with love. You know, we, we love our hot dogs, we love our pizza, we love our dog, we love our wife. I mean, it's, everything fits in the same category. You know, where in the Greek, we have the different words that, that give us a different um, rendition, a uh, demonstration of what, what that love means. Well, when we begin to talk about a child, you know, we just talk about children. But when you go back into the Greek, there's, there's different words, and, and these words are extremely important because when we see these words for what they're really saying, it, it reveals to us where we are um, positionally. You know, positionally. You know, the first one I ever heard use this terminology was, was when I read one of the books of Watchman Nee. And he talked about how as, as believers, uh, where we are positionally and where we are experientially. And uh, he says, positionally, we're seated with Christ right now in heavenly places. We are seated Positionally, we are seated right now in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Experientially, we're still here on earth. 
And so positionally, in Christ, we're full grown. If you could see your spirit man, your spirit man would be mature. Your spirit man would be full grown because your spirit man would have all the, the blessings that belong to Christ. But because we don't know those truths, we don't know that we haven't experienced them experientially in our walk with God, we're still growing, we're still maturing. We're still growing up. And so in the, uh, in the Greek, it has several different words. Um, and this is where we are temporally. Um, Brephos is the first word they're gonna, we're going to look at. And again, they're in your notes. It's talking about a newborn babe. And this is what it, it talks about in 1 Peter 2, 2, when it says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Desire the pure milk of the word. And so, <clears throat> you know, we, we ought to desire the pure milk of the word. But, you know, there's a, there's a point where temporally, as Christians, we need to grow, we need to mature. And so then the next word we see is nipios. And it's, it's talking about babes in Christ. And it comes from 1 Corinthians 3.1. And I, brethren, this is Paul speaking, I could not speak to you as, as to spiritual men, but as carnal, as to babes in Christ. And so there's a lot of Christians They've been born again maybe 20, 30 years, but temporally in their walk with God, they're nippios. What does that mean? They're carnal. They still think worldly. They don't think spiritually in line with the Word of God. Then the next word is <clears throat> pation, and it's talking about a little child. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in, in understanding be mature. And so he's saying, don't be like a child in understanding. Don't, don't be like a little child in your understanding. You know, <clears throat> I can remember when I was first saved, you know, there was a teaching going around. It was, you know, ignorance was bliss because you weren't going to be held accountable for what you didn't know. Well, guess what? What you don't know can't hurt you. You may not believe in gravity. It's a natural law. But if you walk the edge of, off the edge of this building, whether you believe in gravity or not, you're going to hit the ground. You know, and the same thing is spiritual, in the spiritual realm. There may be things we not, may not be aware of. I mean, for many years, I didn't know that healing belonged to me. And so, we, you know, we, we prayed for the sick, but we didn't really expect anything to happen. For many years, I didn't know that God truly desired for me to prosper and be in health, even as my soul prospered. That he became rich, became poor, that I might become rich. And so you walk around, well, this, I guess this is my lot in life. No, it's your lot in life because we're, we're ignorant to what Jesus has really promised to us in his word. And then, then we have technon. It's the Greek word for child. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. You know, and it's, it's showing more maturity. But then it says, the last one is huos. And it's talking about being 
fully mature. And this is out of Romans 4.14. It says, For as many as you are led by the Spirit, these are the huos, these are the sons of God. And so what I want you to see is that when the Bible is talking about us being sons of God, it's talking about us being huos. It's talking about us being mature sons of God. In other words, the pedagogs, the law, has already led us to that place of maturity so that we were able to take and put on that robe of righteousness that we can be recognized as a mature son of God. You can't see into the spirit realm. Well, sometimes you can, maybe. I, I haven't. But I believe that if we could see into the spirit realm, we, each and every one of us, because we've been born again, we would be wearing white robes of righteousness. It would represent our righteousness. And that's why I believe that when God sees us, he doesn't see us as brifos. He doesn't see us as nipios. He doesn't see us as pation. He doesn't see us as technon. He sees us as huos. He sees us as mature sons of God. Now the key is, we need to begin to see ourselves that way. But oftentimes, we use as an excuse, well, I'm just a baby. You know, I've only been saved now for 45 years, so I'm just a, I'm just a baby in the Lord, yet I'm still, I'm still growing, I'm still, still getting, well, even huos still learn, they still grow. It isn't that they, they stop growing, but we've got to begin to see ourselves as to who we are in Christ Jesus. And so the law is our patagon, our patagos, it's our, it's our instructor, it's our tutor, it's the slave to bring us to the place of maturity so that we can, bring, that we can receive the inheritance that belongs to us. When Jesus died, he died for every man, woman, and child that has, is, or ever will live on this earth. Jesus died for them. So technically speaking, everything is available to every man, woman, and child to be a son of God, a huos of God. But the only thing that will keep somebody from entering into that place, entering into that flow, is the rejection. And that's what the pedagogs was there for, to reveal to us we need a Savior to bring us to that place where we understand that we cannot do it in our own strength, in our own ability, that we're dependent completely on Jesus. Amen. So now let's get going into <clears throat> chapter 4, verse 1. And, and, and this will be quicker because, you know, these things had to be set out there. And so in verse four it says, now I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all. And this word here is a nipias. He says, even though he's a son, even though he's an heir, he's no different than a slave. You know what? We have a lot of believers 
They see themselves as nipios. And as a result of that, they basically live as slaves because they don't recognize, they haven't experienced what Jesus has truly, truly done for them. <clears throat> Let me start there again so I can flow into verse 2. Now I say that an heir, so he's talking about somebody who's already in part of the family. I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, a nippios, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's a master of all, even though it all belongs to him. But is under guardians, pedagogues, and stewards, and, and stewards until the time appointed by the father. And notice it's the, it's the father that appoints that time. And under tradition, it was about the age of 14. Uh, it, was, it was a celebration that was called, I don't know if I pronounce this right, but a tega virellis. And it was um, a, a young man stepping into manhood. You know, and I, I think a lot of times, you know, a lot of our church traditions, we, we've taken it uh, from the, the old traditions. You know, the church that I grew up in, um, at about the age of 14, you were, you were confirmed. And so now you can receive communion. You know, on that level, you were considered an adult. and every other level, you weren't. You know, didn't, didn't get any inheritance at that time. You know, but, but under this tradition, that's how it, it would operate. Verse 3. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the law. Child, Nippias, shows they were unbelievers, they were they were under the law or, or under the world. Uh, the law, as we looked last week or the week before, the law is still relevant for the unbeliever because the law is that which will show them they need a Savior. Apart from the law, you won't know that you're in need of a Savior. 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 10 through 10, it says, But we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy, the profane, the murders of fathers, the murders of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now what I want you to notice here is the law is good when it's used lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person. It's not talking about behavior. It's talking about identity. It's talking about position. And then he goes on, <clears throat> and believe it or not, he's not, he's not focusing on sin. He's focusing on identity. And so he says, it's, uh, but for the lawless, it's, 
It's describing an individual, a lawless person. It's describing a insubordinate. You know, and we could take this and at, at some point in time, it applies, it, had, it, it would apply to us somewhere if we take it to the extreme. But it's no longer describing us because that's what we were. I was a sinner. I was lawless. You say, well, pastor, I still periodically break the law. But you're not lawless. Lawless means that's your lifestyle. We're just talking about the, their, the, the murder. That's their lifestyle. That's, that's their identity. That's who they are. We no longer identify with that. And so the law is to be used in a lawful way. And the way that it's used in a lawful way is to take us from that old identity into a new identity, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Then verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, notice the Father set the time that the transition was to take place in the Son. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Well, what's the significance of that? We, we talked about this last week. We're in Christ. When the fullness of time came, Christ came. When Christ came, it was made available to you and I to be in Christ, to be part of Christ. And so just as Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, fulfilled it all, he made it possible for us in him. See, we're not it outside of him. We're huos, we're mature sons of God in Christ. Outside of him, we're totally temporal. Outside of him, we're nipios. Outside of him, we're brephos. Outside of him, we're, 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 we're children, we're babies, we're immature. That's why we act so stupid sometimes. <laughs> hey man, it's biblical. Paul called them stupid. That's why, we, we're, that's why stupid hits us periodically. Because we, not that we really do, but in our consciousness, we step out of Christ. And once we get out of him, everything about us becomes foolish. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was under the law so that he could fulfill the law, so he could redeem us. Jesus didn't do away with the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus was the only one that was able to fulfill the law. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So he fulfilled the law, and when we're in him, that law is fulfilled in our lives. Galatians 5, or 4, 5. To redeem those. Why did he fulfill? Jesus didn't fulfill the law for himself. Jesus was perfect. He didn't, have to, he didn't have to come in the first place. He chose to obey the Father, the will of the Father. He came, 
gave his life for you and I. He fulfilled the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Adoption in the Greek, it's a compound word. Um, the first part of the word is hios, and the second part of the word is um, thesis. And uh, hios, a son, thesis to place. And so you combine that to place as a son. And so in the New Testament, the meaning is we were placed as mature sons when we were born again. That's how God sees us. We may not see it that way. You know, and oftentimes the problem that we have with one another and with other believers is we look at them in the natural. We look at them in the flesh. And so when we talk about them, we talk about them from a natural point of view rather than speaking what God sees. You see, that's what we refer to as positive confession, especially when we speak over somebody else. We're not to call those things that be as though they be. We're to call those things that be not as though they be. And so what we speak over somebody is what God's word says about somebody because that's how God sees them. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I, I'm, just, I'm just always amazed when you, when you read through the Gospels, when you read through Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and when God talks about these different individuals, and he talks about them as being men and women of faith, but I've read about the other parts of their life. And God doesn't even bring that up. He just speaks of what he sees. He sees them walking in faith. He sees <clears throat> their successes. He doesn't even acknowledge their failures. And so why do we? Well, I know why we do it, because we're so insecure. You know, and so it's, it's our insecurities that cause us to talk about other people. You know, it, it can be pride and arrogance, but ultimately it's our own insecurities because if we can tear somebody else down, then we exalt ourselves. And so what we need to do is we need to see ourselves as huos, as mature sons of God. And then we can look at others differently, but we'll never be able to do that until we see ourselves differently. And so then verse 6, it says, and because you are sons. Now why is this taking place? Because we're sons, because we're huos. Because you are huos, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son, into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And so what does that mean? That means we're clothed in the Holy Spirit. We put on Christ. We put on the Holy Spirit. We put on the robe of righteousness. And as a result of that, we have access to the Father. 
And, and you're all familiar with this, but I'm just going to reiterate it here. You know, Abba is, is a term of endearment. It, it, it implies intimacy. You know, the Old Testament saints, they couldn't even call God Father. Remember, they came down so hard on Jesus because Jesus called God his Father and they were, they were ready to stone him for it because nobody called God Father because that, that implied intimacy. And we don't have intimacy with God. But now, he says, because you are sons, huos, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Not just Father, Abba, Father. I, I, don't, I don't like the term because I think it oftentimes carries a tone of flippancy and so I don't like it. You know, but one of the definitions of, of Abba is Daddy. You know, so he's, he's daddy father. He's daddy God to you and I. You know, but don't, but don't take that too far where you get, like, don't get too familiar because he's still God. You know, you know what I'm I, I think one of the things that's lost many times in the day that we live in is the awe of God. I'm not talking about terror. I'm talking about awe of God. You know, and, and we don't want to, we don't want to lose that. So he's our, he's our daddy God, but don't, don't sacrifice awe of God because he's all of that to all of us. Verse seven, therefore you are no longer slaves. That's why he brings this in here. Because remember the, the Patagos, what did he do? He was a slave that led, that trained up that prepared that child to become a mature son of God. And that's what the law did for you and I. In a sense, we were, we were slaves. We we're slaves to sin. Sinners don't sin because they're bad people. Sinners sin because that's what sinners do. You think, well, that's a funny thing to say, but that's the truth. And they're enslaved to sin. I mean, I can remember as a sinner, I, w I didn't want to. I tried with all my strength. I would, I would blow it and I'd feel bad. I can remember as a child laying in bed at night crying because I knew that I'd hurt the heart of God. But you know what? I had no power over it. I was a slave to sin. I was a slave to peer pressure. I was a slave to what everybody else thought. But it was through Christ Jesus when I was introduced to him. And it was the law that revealed to me that which enslaved me revealed to me that I needed a savior. And bless God, I'm free. It may not always look like it, but I'm free. Hallelujah. So, therefore, we're no longer, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and a son than an heir of God through Christ. If you're a son, you're an heir. 
That means the entirety of the inheritance belongs to you. Verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? What's he talking about? He's talking about the law. He's saying, you were a slave to the law. And if there was anybody that understands this, it was the Jews. They were enslaved to it. If you don't believe it, <clears throat> go to Israel. Before we ever got to Israel, because our plane was going to land in Tel Aviv, there were all kinds of Jews. And they were in their little corner. They were enslaved to it. Didn't matter whether they were in the airport, didn't matter where they were, they had to go and point to the wrong direction. You know, it had to be the right direction, had to be at the right time. They did it. You get to, to Jerusalem and it's, it's an awesome place, but you, you go to the wailing wall and they're wailing all over the place, sticking their little notes and they, um, and um, and um, and um. you know, and I'm not making fun of it. But I'm telling you, they're enslaved. We, we stayed in the Jerusalem Hotel. In the Jerusalem Hotel on Sunday or Saturdays, you don't have to push the button. You speak it and it will automatically take you to the floor that you want to go to. Because if you push the button, that would be works. On the Sabbath, we had a meeting at, uh, at this hotel at the uh, um, Dead Sea. And so this Jewish rabbi spoke to us that day. I mean, first they had this, this woman share that how she spends her Fridays in preparation for the Sabbath. She spends the entire day Friday cleaning the house to make sure it's totally clean, making sure that all the food is prepared and it's, it's cutlets and stuff because you can't cook. Cook would be work on, on the Sabbath, so you don't do anything on the Sabbath. And so then the rabbi got up to speak and he could not use a microphone. We're in a room of a couple thousand people and so he's out amongst the tables and he's, he's just talking and yelling. We were very fortunate. I was, we were in the next table right next to him so I was able to hear everything that he had to say. But you know what? Couldn't use the sound system because that would be works. Slavery. And he's saying, you've been set free from this. Why do you want to place yourself back under this bondage once again. I didn't say it. Paul said it. He called it bondage. Now, I think the reason that he emphasizes it so much is because when you get over in that place, you begin to trust that, or rather, you begin to trust self once again, rather than leaving your trust and your confidence 
completely in Jesus Christ. He says you observe days and months and seasons and years. He's saying you're reverting back to this. The days refers to the Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday, and we've already talked about that. You know, as Christians, we celebrate on Sunday. We celebrate at the beginning of the week. We, we begin our week in faith. You know, we, we give in faith. I know we've, we've changed it around to where we, we tithe off of what we've already brought in. <clears throat> and so nobody throw anything at me. But technically, what we're supposed to do is we're to tithe in faith. We're to tithe off of... <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to church tonight? But we're, we're to tithe in faith. We're to tithe with expectation. Now, it may be the same every week because you, your, your paycheck is the same every week, but you tithe in faith. You, you tithe looking forward because we, we go to church on Sunday because of, of faith or expect, expectation of what's before us. In the Old Testament, everything looked back. They, they celebrated the Sabbath thanking God that they made it to Saturday. We thank God we're going to make it to Sunday. We're looking forward. You know, as Christians, we don't look back. We spend too much time looking back. We spend too much time talking about looking back on our past. Where we're to focus forward, we're to look forward to what Jesus has truly made available to us. So, days we're not going to make it. <clears throat> but this, this part isn't very exciting, so let me get through this. Uh, months, months is going back to um, the, the, the feast that the Jews uh, celebrated when they were relieved from Babylonian captivity. That's what it's talking about when it's talking about the months, that they're even reverting back to those things. Seasons are, are talking about the festivals. Um, the, the Jewish calendar had, had seven feasts or festivals that they would celebrate. And uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how uh, Jesus, through Christ, Christio Christiology, fulfilled these things. But... Um, <clears throat> They were the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Dedication of the First Fruits, uh, the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement. You know, all of those are the feasts. And, you know, we ought to be aware of them. We ought to know about them, what they represent and so forth. But we also need to realize that Jesus was the fulfillment of those things. Because always those Feasts were looking forward to the coming of Jesus. You know, and uh, uh, the trumpets is talking about the return of Christ and so forth. But what are we told? We're told to look up for our redemption draweth nice. And then, then the years. Um, refers to the seven, seven years uh, on the ancient cal uh, Jewish calendar. It's culminated. <laughs> I didn't say that right culminated, culminated in uh, the 50th. And, you know, we know it as the year of Jubilee. And listen to this, what Jesus said in uh, Luke, the fourth chapter, the 18th verse. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
This is after he got up and he, he read um, the scriptures. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We, you don't have to wait seven years. You don't have to wait 14 years. You don't have to wait 21 years. You don't have to wait 28 years. I'm going to quit before I make a fool of myself. You don't have to wait 50 years. You have jubilee. What does that mean? That means you're set free. You're free. No more bondage. You're free. And so there needs to be this expectation that goes along with the truth. And when we begin to see ourselves as, as huos, as mature sons of God, all of a sudden, our outlook in life gets different. You know, it's interesting. We, we oftentimes want to see ourselves as less mature rather than more mature. But you know, I remember when Isaac was little, we, we, we went to the lake. We were on vacation. He was just a little guy. And uh, he wanted to go out on the dock. And we said, Isaac, you're too little to go on the dock. And he wanted to do something else. And we said, Isaac, you're too little to do that. And he stepped over on the grass and he says, but I'm big enough to step on the grass. <laughs> See, he wanted, he wanted to extend his limits. Oftentimes what we want to do is we want to apply limits because those limits can be our excuse. Let's get rid of the excuses. Let's just be mature sons of God and fulfill his plan and purpose. And we got kids roaming in the entryway, so be blessed in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Glory to God.